I'm going to hand it over to Aaron Zimmerman, or as he's known on the blog, Aaron Zimmerman. If that is my real name. All right, well, let's just jump right in. This is the chance where uh, the three of you, thank you very much, obviously, for your preparation, your time, and all that you've shared with us, but this is the chance for the three of you to say anything you haven't said, and uh, this is the chance for any uh, hecklers that haven't gotten to say their piece, or uh, people that want to ask questions, or whatever it is. Um, this is sort of the, your, your last chance here. So we're going to just jump right in and open it. I'm going to just ask each of you uh, a question, which is, is there anything that you want to say that you haven't said, or anything as you think back on your remarks that really crystallized or jumped out as the main thing for you? Um, so just two minutes uh, for each of you, and then we'll open it up for questions. So uh, I'm happy to uh, ask maybe Simeon, since you're closest to me, would you begin? Okay. Um. I don't think I really have too much to add uh, in terms of, I felt like people, what I said yesterday, talking to people afterwards, that most people had, to, had a sense of what I was trying to get at. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I, didn't, I don't want to in any way undermine the objective, uh, as Rod was talking about today, and, and the importance of you know, Jesus Christ and the cross and the atonement and, and the historical reality of it and all those things um, in what I was saying. And I was, um, a lot of these thoughts are kind of directed at people who I think, um, uh, who precisely know that and appreciate that, um, and sort of taking it a little, uh, bringing it at least into, into contact with, with some of their other um, experiences or where they've come from or, or something like that. Um, but I, I, so in what I was saying, I wouldn't want to undermine any of that. Um, and uh, beyond that, I don't really have too much to add. Well, we'll just wait for another 30 seconds while your time runs out, just in silence. Take this moment for reflection. All right. Well, uh, Rod, would you like to share just something? Just one thing, and it's not going to take two minutes. Uh, the fellow who was asking about the subjective life, over coffee, I remembered another C.S. Lewis quote. This is really more for pastors and priests, but all of us who are lay people recognize it. Lewis said one time, there is one surefire way to shut down any particular emotion. Pastor can do that, and the way in which he can do it is to tell people what emotion they should be having now. <laughs> it's a surefire way to make it impossible. And most of us pastors have done that more than once. Um, let the word do whatever it's going to do. And one person will be crying, and the other person will be something else. But Lewis said, for heaven's sakes, don't tell them what emotion is appropriate for right now. Thank you. Well, Bishop. I'm going to um, use up your, my time and your time. Fine. Because yeah. I, I, I couldn't sleep last night because um, the sin that I committed yesterday uh, when someone asked me what encouraging word do I have for you and I did it was all about me I said uh, you've encouraged me and I didn't tell you anything about how you could be encouraged and I, I got an opportunity now to maybe do a better job of that um, it's one is an example of uh, it, it's all about me and it's still there at 83 <coughs> and 
what I would like to say is to quote um, Michael Green, um, that is, uh, it's revelation or speculation, and revelation is scripture. And uh, we've all got to go back to scripture. This is what Rod has been doing all along and makes my heart uh, sing, uh, to, to know, to have that confidence about scripture. And uh, it seems to me that what we are lacking uh, is an epistemology uh, that opens it up, and we've got a wrong epistemology. Epistemology is just how do you know knowledge? How do you know anything? What are the principles of, and the methodology of knowledge? And we've got a hermeneutic of skepticism with which we approach scripture from which, um, as J.V. Langley Cassidy says, we are confronted by the paradox of a way of studying the word of God out of which no word of God ever seems to come with an imposing modern knowledge of the Bible which seems quite incapable of saying anything biblically or thinking uh, biblically. Um, and Luke Timothy Johnson, he's a laicized Roman uh, Catholic at, uh, at the Methodist uh, Seminary in uh, Emory, he said, the result of taking these New Testament exegesis courses is like getting raped. One is never quite innocent again, but neither is one in love. Uh, <laughs> this, the student knows that it is old-fashioned and wrong to treat the text in the naive fashion that he or she had before. The result is simply that ministers do not pay any attention to the scripture at all, regarding it as the arcane playground of specialists and therefore lose their roots in the normative document of our religion and become pop theologians and pop psychologists posing as ministers of the word. All right. <laughs> now, how do we go about changing that? And I want to go back to Anselm, not the proofs of the existence of God, but you have, we need to believe in order to know. Now, I do not believe that that fork in the road between Anselm and Abelard is just eat, uh, right and wrong, uh, as it is in Erasmus and Luther. Uh, Erasmus is wrong, and Luther is just right. But um, you, you can't say that... Um, Abelard was just wrong. Uh, you've got to know in order to believe. Oh, I mean, Jesus is not some catfish in the Mississippi River, you know. You've got to know some things you know, out there in order to, to know who Jesus is. But you will not know who Jesus is, and you will not know the revelation that God has disclosed to us in the Scripture if uh, you do not approach it with trust. Someone wrote a book about trust in an age of arrogance. Uh, modesty forbids my disclosing the author of that. Uh, but it's a, it's a hermeneutic of trust. Now, this is not just the scripture. I am talking about my grandson, 31 years old, unmarried. Um, how is he to have a friend if he does not uh, take the risk of trust? If he approaches any man or any woman uh, on the grounds at, and the method of skepticism that we are taught by Descartes and John Locke um, to doubt everything you can doubt until you can't doubt you're doubting, uh, then if you can, he will doubt that she is really loving him 
He will doubt that she is trustworthy. He will doubt that she works out as a partner and a friend. And he, after a period of time, he draw a line on her and describe her actions during this time. And the most he can hope for is that, uh, that she behaves so far as if she's a friend. That's as hard far as he can get unless he approaches her with the risk of trust. And it is a risk. We talked about early, that early, earlier. And by this time, I'm telling you, she's gone. And Martha will never have a great-grandchild, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I've taken up my time and their time. But uh, we must approach. Uh, and and uh, who did it? I, I think um, this guy, Richard Hayes, I don't want to give him okay about everything, but um, um, I want to argue, he says, he's at Duke, I want to argue that a hermeneutic of trust is both necessary and primary in order to get our bearings on the question of our fundamental attitude towards Scripture, I propose that we take our cue from the Reformation and then return to Scripture itself if we attend carefully to Paul's treatment of trust and this distrust in his letter to the Romans the apostle may lead us to suspect our own uh, suspicions. And also David Steinmet, a historian at Duke, wrote an article in 1987 saying, the superiority of pre-critical exegesis. It was just great. Uh, so, so don't get intimidated by uh, these uh, spiritually hazardous uh, victims uh, who've been teaching this New Testament <laughs> and, and Scripture, but approach it with the kind of risk of trust. You know, today there are people who are in the classics, field of the classics, who are absolutely astounded that with the manuscript treasure we have of the Greek New Testament, that we don't trust it. They in their field have one-twentieth of what we have, and they just cannot figure out the amount of distrust in New Testament scholars of their own material. Uh, it seems to them psychiatric, that there's a, there's a BB loose in the can, and I can see why they say that. Um, this is a scholarly question, and, and if you approach it through whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accurate historians, we are led to a divine Christ who was a ranting, raving fundamentalist on the inspiration of the Old Testament. And he forgot more scripture than I'll ever know. This was God himself in the flesh saying, I'm going to base arguments on single words and phrases from the Old Testament text. When he was alone with the devil in Matthew 4, the devil tempted him with the text of the Old Testament, and Jesus outquoted him from the text of the Old Testament to answer. If God himself in the flesh had that kind of a view of the Old Testament and then promised what he promised to the later New Testament writers that they would be writing the equivalent, then in order to break the argument, you've got to break Christ's resurrection from the dead. There's this small verse in John that's easy to remember because all the digits are the same. It's sort of a throwaway line in chapter 2. 
When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. The case is the case that a classicist or a lawyer is welcome to take on. And finally, it's going to hinge on who is he and how do you know that's who he is. Then to coattail on his view of scripture because he's above all of us as God in flesh. This is much better than getting into some sort of duel on some Greek verb uh, with some New Testament guy. You need something definitive that will say this is why we ought respect scripture as God's words, to quote Warfield. And the best case is the historical case. If you want this developed, I recommend the audio series from John Warwick Montgomery, Sensible Christianity. Sensible Christianity. It's available out of Alberta. The Christian Institute for Theology, Law, Theology, and Public Policy. Sensible Christianity. And there you'll have a lawyer building a case for a high view of Scripture. Seminarians need to know this before they get to seminary, because they're not going to get it in seminary. They'll get the opposite. So if I can recap, um, Jesus is not a catfish in the Mississippi River, and trust the lawyers. Um, well, I, I would, in seriousness, so we're going to open it now to your questions, and I do want to recap what... Uh, just briefly, sort of the, the themes from each of you this weekend um, over the conference. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, you spoke this morning about Christ being outside of us and uh, how that rails against our current desire to always look within, especially in, in uh, our generation uh, in this time. Uh, you, um, talked, you told people not to go to church if the gospel is not preached, and that was a freeing and terrifying word for some people. Um, uh, we uh, learned not to go to Wheaton College, possibly. Uh, uh, Bishop Allison, you spoke about uh, logizomai, of reckoning, of imputing righteousness, and uh, the significance of that. You spoke of parakaleo and uh, uh, the alternative translations, comfort, exhort, and you argued for the uh, understanding as encouragement. Um, you spoke about guilt as something that's um, not the things we've done, but the gap between where we are now and what we shall be. Uh, uh, Dr. Zoll, you spoke about the Holy Spirit working through suffering, working through where you are experiencing pain, where you are experiencing nothingness or the mundane aspects of life or feeding your child cereal at the table. The Holy Spirit can be working in all of that. Uh, you spoke about Blumhardt and his um, bringing together Reformation theo or, uh, Lutheran theology and an um, and a, and a active and uh, serious uh, engagement with the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's sort of where we have been in, in, in brief. And so with that, just would love to open it up to any other questions um, uh, or all right, the first one I saw is right here. I just want to say I'm in seminary, so it was really refreshing to hear what you said about biblical studies, um, because it's really frustrating. Um, but that's not my question. Something else that does stem from my experience in seminary is that uh, 
and this is probably more for Dr. Rosenblatt and maybe Simeon too, because this does have to do with suffering in certain respects, but there's a lot of uh, sort of pull towards service uh, outreach ministries that I come across every day. I get like 50 emails to do this, that, and the other thing for the homeless. And I think it's important that we do these types of things. I don't want to belittle it, but there's a lot of energy in the church towards this kind of thing. And I think it is distracting us from the gospel. And I wonder if you could speak to that, if there is any you know, reason to do this type of service or if we're just um, wasting our time, you know, um, maybe I'm presuming some things, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I don't know that I have any wisdom that you don't already have on that. The, the social ministries are important. If the gospel isn't central in the life of the parish, then subspecia eternitatus, what? But the combo of the eternal gospel present week by week by week by week in a parish and it spilling over into doing uh, great work on the streets, great. Uh, I, I, that's, that's how it ought to be. Uh, my my uh, working with the White Horse Inn, I've discovered how little, we find this out by surveys of people, how little people actually understand what the gospel is. Um, that's a problem. That's a problem. We can end up like Europe very, very simply. And when it's the megachurch sort of world uh, of entertainment, I worry that they won't go Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Episcopal, Reformed Baptist. When that burns out, they'll go to atheism. That's what worries me. I tried the Jesus thing, and it's just a drug. And it wore off. Uh, we can't compete with TV. They've got more money than we do and more talent. Huh? But... In some lowly parish where some pastor is placarding Christ crucified and the promise that's inherent in that, um, there's enough power to, to power New York City. If it spills over into social ministries, great. Dr. Zoll? I would, uh, I would agree with all of that. Um, and also... Uh, just say that I think some of the stuff I was trying to say at the end yesterday about um, freedom, about you know, uh, just dealing with what's right in front of you and, and the creativity of that um, and, uh, and the love actually that that births and the ministry that can be birthed out of extraordinary freedom, uh, I think that can very easily, very well uh, then flow into, as uh, Rod was saying, into all sorts of compassionate ministry. Um, and then also real concern about suffering and difficulty and brokenness and all those things can lead to compassion for those who are suffering and not just existentially but physically. Uh, there would also be a resource there, I think. But I would also, you know, still want to make sure that the, the priority um, is on the cross. Well, uh, John, did you have a question? Uh, it's a 
question and it's also just a reaction. I just want to uh, say uh, to you all, but, but especially to Bishop Allison just now, how, how very grateful um, I was to hear you talk about a, a hermeneutic of trust um, just now. And, uh, and also I was, I was thinking how you guys were fielding some of these questions about analogy and, and what we do here at Mockingbird in, in terms of trying to find um, sometimes uh, uh, non-Christian uh, analogies that may be able to help people. And all I could think of is you, you talked about the her hermeneutic of trust and your usual thing of talking about it in terms of love, you know, and relationship is how there are, there are, in fact, there's like some really good like plays about this, like Othello, right? Okay, that's the whole story, right? You know, is that he's trying to intellectually or, or, you know, use it based on evidence. Well, the evidence is showing, given to him by Iago, right? Okay, is, is all that Desdemona is, is being faithless, right? And same thing in Much Ado uh, with Hero and Claudio and so on. And I, I just... Uh, what you said to me has just been so powerful uh, to me, and I, I, I'm wondering. I just want to make sure I haven't mis misunderstood you, and I guess that's why I wanted to, to, to ask you to comment a little bit further on that—the whole issue of a hermeneutic of trust in terms of an analogy of human relationship. Thank you for giving me that opportunity, because immediately I thought when I said what I said that somebody said, oh, well, he's going to lead us back into fundamentalism and a brainless, mindless kind of unscholarly thing, just accept the word as it is without any kind of criticism. No, I, that's not what I mean. And I would say that um, <clears throat> there's an enormous amount of scholarly, intellectually respectable, carefully worked out um, stuff on what I'm trying to say about recovery of trust and the heart as means of knowledge. Uh, there's, thank God, I, there's a man at Sewanee of all places, because uh, there wasn't anybody like this there when I was there for 14 years. Um, the logic of the heart, colon, Augustine, Pascal, and the rationality of faith by James Peters. It's a dense book, uh, and it's, but it is, um, clear and it's remarkable, it's worth all the trouble to go through that and it's recovering the kind of epistemology that we, um, I think of it as having uh, glasses that are different from the glasses of the culture. Um, when you look, take the glasses of the culture as a product of the culture, I look at the scripture and there's just so many contradictions and it's in some strange language and Jesus uh, kept saying that either, you know, you believe in me or you're dead. And then I put on the glasses of trust and, and I can see. Um, and I can see um, things that I was, could not perceive before. Uh, I, I travel a lot now and, and, and go to motels and hotels and I go in the shower to take wash my hair and um, I leave my glasses outside and I can't read whether it's the shampoo or it's the mouthwash, you know. Um, and I've been known to try to wash my hair with a mouthwash, you know, because I, I was too lazy to go in and get my glasses so I could see shampoo, you see. Well, uh, if you don't have this, these glasses uh, of trust, uh, you will not be able to enable it. Now, there are lots of other books. Uh, Michael Polanyi has, you know, helped us a great deal with this um, in, in his book, uh, 
personal knowledge and G.I. Packer on knowing God. But the easiest, simplest sort of thing is never been exceeded, I think, C.S. Lewis's Fern, Seed, and Elephants. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to get, I gave that mm-hmm. to every seminarian, mm-hmm. and I said, well, don't tell the New Testament department, I gave it to you. you know? <laughs> but sneak it in there and, and read that. And no less a theologian than Austin Farah said that it was the best thing yep. that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Huh? Now, that's a huge command, huh. and that will help us all to regain the glasses by which we don't have to wash our hair with the mouthwash. Another one along that line is C.S. Lewis's faulting the Bible critics. I remember Dr. Montgomery lecturing and saying, don't react to these guys because their conclusions are impious. React to them because their scholarship is crappy. Um, I may be sort of purposely pushing on a bruise a little bit because I just want to engage with this. Um, uh, Simeon and Rod, um, it seemed to me y'all talked, you, Rod, you briefly discussed it, and Simeon, you, you talked about it a fair amount, I think, the, the idea of assurance and how and, and where that comes from. And, um, and sort of speaking as an inveterate agnostic, um, as one who's a Christian yet has a very large agnostic on his shoulder, um, you know, not seeing, you know, Christ on the cross or the empty tomb, but, but, but seeing the rain falling on the just and the unjust. Um, the, the assurance, the objective assurance that I heard from you, the, the, the sacraments, the, uh, the preaching of the word sort of mediated through the church, um, not in the Roman Catholic sense, but, but, um, but, but the assurance that I heard from you, Simeon, the, the sort of unmediated presence of absence, I guess, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the negative. Um, I wonder if y'all could maybe sort of interact with that, um, uh, maybe, maybe comment one on the other, <laughs> uh, just, just to help me flesh that out from, for, for, from somebody who's sort of grasping for something. Let me, let me cite something that I think you can find on the web somewhere. Dr. Philip Carey, who has done for the teaching company the theology of Luther, marvelously, except for one lecture out of 30, he's Episcopal and he's a philosopher, and he does Luther better than we Lutherans do. Teaching company, Philip Carey. He came to one of our theological gatherings and did a lecture on assurance in Luther and assurance in Calvin. That might be helpful if you chase that down. I think it's called sola fide, but I would have called it assurance in Luther and assurance in Calvin. Dr. Philip Carey, who is an Episcopal philosopher at Eastern College. And that is one interesting um, look at the assurance question. I'll leave it at that. Well, um... I mean, assurance is a huge issue, and in, in the, the piece by Luther that um, I interacted with the most in my work, um, that's the main, the thing that's at stake. He thinks that the, the enthusiasts, the, the charismatics, are throwing away assurance, among other things <laughs> that are all bad. Um, and, uh, and Luther was, had an immense pastoral concern for anxious consciences, and for him, the uh, objective trust in the word 
proclaimed and, and, and the sacraments was of enormous importance. Um, I mean, I would have to say, I mean, we, you know, we'd probably disagree a little bit on this. Uh, it, it's, I haven't um, always found the sacraments the word to... Um, it sometimes sounds a little like an idea that I should be assured by these things rather than that I actually feel like I am. Um, and, of course, uh, so I think our, our assurance is through the Holy Spirit, acting through the Word, through the sacraments, but also through other things. Um, and, uh, and I also think that there are times when it's, you know, when the, the honest thing is, is, to, is to deal with the lack of assurance. Um, in terms of, and in, in, in a cruciform, in a, in a theology of the cross sort of way to say, gosh, I really don't feel assured by these things that should be assuring me. And it's great if they are, but if they aren't, then that's the place to, to start. Um, but in terms of a, a specific theology of where assurance comes from, I, I wish I were as confident as Luther about where to find it, and it's great <laughs> when people do find it there, but I haven't myself... Uh, always found that to be uh, enough. That's just where I'm coming from. The next question here from Brian. Hi. Um, apologies. This is I'm a first-year seminarian. This might be a softball for everybody else in the room. But um, one of the things, uh, being in seminary right now at a um, uh, Episcopal seminary in um, Pittsburgh, is that uh, as somebody who believes in the, 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 the historic... Reformation understanding of the Christian faith, um, I get that we have weak pneumatology a lot. We have a weak theology of the Holy Spirit um, and things of that sort. Uh, and I know it's wrong, and I know it's sort of pejorative and unfair. Um, I was wondering if you guys, uh, especially Dr. Zoll, but also Rod and Fitz, um, if you guys have run into that at all, and uh, how do you respond to that? And uh, um, it just it'd be helpful for me. Thanks. Oh, sure. Sure. I would say, um, I mean, it's, a, it's just in sort of fads or trends in, in, in mainstream academia that it, pneumatology is kind of hot right now, um, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> um, it's partly because of, um, well, there are a lot of different reasons, but, but one of them is, is that there are, so, there are a couple hundred million people who are talking about the Spirit all the time who weren't around a hundred years ago, um, and that's, that's worth talking about. Um, I myself uh, find the category of the Holy Spirit just very useful, very productive, very creative, talking about freedom. Um, and uh, so I think um, pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> but in terms of, um, I mean, I guess, so, and my contribution to that is what I said yesterday. Uh, uh, I think that um, I'm especially interested in how many people are where they are in terms of their Christian faith and, and the stuff that has actually mattered to them and gotten them uh, to where they are has to do with the spirit, um, ex you know, experience of God, that sort of thing. I think that's interesting and, it, and it's easy to, to forget about that for, for kind of good theological reasons sometimes, but at the same time it's you always want to deal with people where they are and where they're coming from, and very often the Holy Spirit these days, in my experience, is where people are at least coming from, even if it, 
then let them down horribly. Um, so that's what I would say. Jim Packer talks about the Holy Spirit having a spotlight ministry. That is, to keep the sun bathed in the light and on the stage never lose him. His subject is someone else other than himself. And I think uh, for us to read the New Testament uh, aright, especially those sections in John where he describes the one who's to come who's like him, is to ask the questions that Jim Packer was asking. Um, and I, I say this uh, knowing full well that this is, a, this is a critique of Lutherans, and I think to a certain extent of Reformed, mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty ubiquitous. Uh, you people are just weak on your pneumatology. But when we talk about the Spirit's work in the very words of the text, many times, the more enthusiastically inclined aren't interested in doing that very much. I don't know if that's because it isn't very thrilling. I don't know. But we probably are rightly critiqued for saying we're not going to move away from this chapter of John, these verses. Ephesians 5.18 will go to the book of Acts knowing it's not one of the didactic books, but we will go to those texts that the Pentecostals always use and to see if we can make sense of those. And it's usually going to be in a non-Anabaptist way. So it's there you're a consumer to say who's built the better case. But I know that Reformation Lutherans aren't going to be the most thrilling in the group. Well... <coughs> I think one of the things we miss in the pneumatology and the Holy Spirit is a rather negative thing, and that is um, he, he comes as, um, as critic and judge. I was walking up Second Avenue some many years ago with Jack Woodard, another uh, clergyman friend of mine, and we were going to a meeting at 281, um, and he said, asked me a rhetorical question. He said, Fitz, do you know what... Um, the wrath of God is. And I said, no, Jack, I don't know what the wrath of God is. And he said, it's a church meeting from which God has withdrawn his Holy Spirit. I mean, he really doesn't have to do anything to judge us and for it to be miserable except to withdraw his Holy Spirit and leave us with our spirits. And I think that's what's happening in many situations. And I might then be so bold to say that, as St. Paul tells us, there are different vocations. And I want to suggest there's a legitimate vocation for staying in a parish where the gospel is not altogether preached um, as a vocation because um, I think some people stayed at Grace Church when I was not altogether preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I remember especially, I, I love... Uh, Rod's statement about it, when people say wonderful things about the sermon, you ought to say, well, what did I do wrong? <laughs> you know? And I preached a wonderful sermon, and everybody was saying how great it was, and uh, I was saying, thank you very much, that's very kind, and I was telling, and then all of a sudden, I realized what this guy had said. 
He said, oh, Fitz, that sermon was like water to a drowning man. (laughs) There's a place for that. And then another time, I can remember, I preached another wonderful sermon, and everybody was just so responsive, and I would just bask in all these compliments, and I I was on the woman taking an adultery. And everybody... it was just wonderful that people realized about forgiveness, you know. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And uh, they just thought it was wonderful. And I noticed a chap hanging back. And he did, he waited till everybody had gone. And then he came up and he grabbed my hands and looked up in my face and said, I am the husband of a woman taken in adultery. Would you please preach a sermon sometime for me? And then I went back and, and thought about the sermon that I had preached. And I believe there was a lot of cheap grace in it. So thank God for these two people. When I had not done the spirit film gospel and somebody stayed around to to say I remember another one some of you remember Eric McKittrick he said I preached what I thought was really a great thing too it was about um, uh, weird providence progress and weird again that's the history of civilization the word um, weird is anglo-saxon for uh, necessity, Ananke, Moira, you know, in Greek. Uh, and when something happens to you, you drown in a forge, you die of cancer in the ninth century, that was your weird, you know. And then the Christian church came in and gave it providence. And then providence gave us arrogance. <laughs> Confidence, it was, there was a promise and a providence in everything, that, even the tragedies. And then we took it to heart and made a, a virtue out of it in progress and that progress is running out and it's all weird again and Eric McKitchen said I don't know what you were trying to you were driving at with that sermon <laughs> I mean people in the south don't do that you know if they, if they don't like it they said oh it was over, your, over my head and you go away thinking aren't you so smart you know but, but up here in New York they say I don't know what you were trying to do with that sermon <laughs> so you, there's a vocation to stick in there and stick them a little bit you know with the one little, um, sorry. Uh, one little thing I w- just wanted to add um, in light of uh, maybe uh, some of the parts of where Luther talked about the spirit that I find particularly really interesting um, are, and where I think we can um, very much be on the same page, is first, for Luther, the spirit was the agent behind the law. So when the law comes in and you're judged and you're crushed and you're killed, properly speaking, the agent of that is the law in its in, in that in its sort of judging capacity? Um, and he said that in, in a few places, uh, and he loved that verse in John 16:8. The Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, not just to bring blessing and resurrect and, and do those things. Um, and then, secondly, the distinction between law and gospel, uh, which is a such an interesting and powerful thing, but also kind of elusive. And in, in talking about that in his table talk, Luther said that. Um, you know, people think I know how to distinguish law and gospel, that I'm really good at it, but actually, I'm terrible at it. I've been studying it all my life, and I'm terrible at it. In fact, only the Holy Spirit knows this art. 
Uh, and so that when law and gospel are properly distinguished, i.e. when they're good sermons, um, when uh, people are undone in the right kind of way, um, that's the spirit. Uh, and, and likewise, the gospel. And um, so those, anyway, the connection with the spirit, with the law, and also with the distinguishing between law and gospel. For those who are, you who are more theologically minded, I think is a really interesting way into the spirit um, from that perspective. Well, we have uh, here now our last question. Matt. Thank you to all three of you. It's been a real joy to hear you. Uh, this question is directed to Fitz. Um, we've had a lot of discussion at Rosemont, and I visited you quite a bit, but one question I've always wanted to ask you is, how did you receive this teaching on the law and the gospel? Because it's certainly not uh, an Episcopalian tradition. And... Um, who, who gave you this word over to you, the biblical distinction of law and gospel? And then the second part to the question would be, in our church that's fracturing now, uh, not just with laity, but specifically with uh, ministers who always think they know it all, how do you hand, hand, hand over law and gospel to those who are not yet here, who are ordained ministers in our uh, church? It's hard. I really don't know how that happened. I can remember certain things. Um, I had a wonderful professor at Sewanee who made me read almost all of Niebuhr before I got to seminary, and that really burned out my sentimentality about Christianity. It gave me a sense of original sin and of power and of grace. Um, but it wasn't. Strangely enough, uh, I picked up C.H. Dodd on Romans. You're kidding. And, and it's, it's not one of my favorite, you know, uh, I, I go to um, Bart's <laughs> Roma brief, you know, now. But even C.H. Dodds, that's when the penny fell to me. Mm. And I said, my, it was not the Damascus Road experience. Uh, I'm afraid it didn't. I, I was telling Rod earlier when we were in this that I, I think if... Um, if I had been in the culture in the 16th century, I would have been more like Luther. But when I first celebrated Holy Communion, I was not afraid. I was nervous making a mistake. But I did not think I was really in the presence of a transcendent God who required an absolute justice on the part of me and had given me a way to live with that that I hadn't quite discovered yet. I didn't tremble. I was just nervous about dropping something or not doing the service right. And if I had had that sense of transcendence that is virtually absent from the 20th and 21st centuries, the air we breathe, then perhaps the conversion to gospel from law would have produced more fruits as it did. I think I bought it cheap. I came in it too easy. And I don't have 94 folio versions that he wrote. I'm not saying that I had the talent to do everything. I certainly don't have the musical talent that he had. But um, maybe after all these many, many years, uh, I would have produced um, more evidence of this if I had been more terrified mm. at the very beginning. Mm. And if I didn't get into it rather e too easy. 
the end of our panel discussion. Thank you very much to all our speakers.